I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 4. John the Apostle authored five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So don't get confused between the Johns. We're in 1st John. It's very close to the end of the Bible. Uh, for some of you, that may be old hat. For those of you, it might be helpful information. It's very close to the end of the Bible, but it's not quite to Revelation. And Revelation really reveals the pastoral heart of an old man named John. Um, kind of a front runner to Polycarp, an early church martyr. Interested in the churches in Asia Minor, concerned for the churches. Revelation 2 and 3 talks about it. Um, the church would return to its first love. The church would, um, would not give in to Jezebel's. The church would have a biblical, balanced, spiritual approach to its life together. So I want to ease over into a little bit of those thoughts in our second and third sermon. I told you from the onset that there were there was three letters that made glue. It didn't get the E on the end. I didn't get four sermons. Three's enough. G-L-U. There's no E on the end, but G-L-U. To try to kind of tie these three messages together. And the first key word was glory. G. And the second key word is tonight's theme. It's love. And the third one will be unity. And that'll be tomorrow's message from Ephesians. So tonight, out of the glue, we talk about love. And I want to kind of give you a, a message map for uh, tonight's message. Um, if you want to follow along in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, we're going to see love's definition, love's display, and love's continued expression tonight. Love's definition, love's display, and love's continued expression. Uh, you know, thinking about this word love, it's, it's kind of ubiquitous. Um, there's themes now. Uh, love knows no bounds. Love has no labels. Um, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. You know, uh, what's love got to do with it? Um, what is love, um, biblically speaking? And wh- what does the Bible have to say about love? And particularly, what does First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 have to say about, about love? So we're going to, uh, to look at love's definition as well as love's expression and its continued expression tonight in God's people, the, the one another's of the church. Let's listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 for a first level reading together tonight. Let's, let's let the Lord speak to us by his word um, tonight. 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to, the, to be the propitiation for our sins. Anybody have a different word in their translation than propitiation? It's okay if you do. I'm just curious. Halasmus, we're all getting propitiation. They're good. It's a $10 word. We get to use it tonight. It's great. To be the propitiation for our sins. For our sins. Plural. Our sins. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God if we love one another God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, I just want to straightway read it again. 
This time I want you to count the number of times the word love or beloved appears. Love or beloved. Let's see if we get the same one. I'll tell you what. Guys, you count the beloveds. Ladies, you count the loves. There's more of them. And let's figure out how many there are. Okay, shall we? I'll read it and you count as, as you kind of read along to yourself with me. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, guys, that was your clue. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also, also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I seldom make sermons dialogical, but for the sake of just kind of waking up from dinner, frankly, this is an odd night anyway. I've never quite preached to Dickens apparel-wearing peoples before, so uh, we'll, I'll, I'll spring for a dialogical comment this, this one time, even though I believe preaching is a, is a monologue. Uh, let's start with the ladies. How many loves did we get? That's what I had, too. Baker's dozen. And gentlemen... How many beloveds did we get, too? Yeah. Same, same word family, if you were to just look it up lexically. Same word family. Uh, guys, you really need to thank me for that. I was trying to make it easy for you there. Uh, two beloveds and uh, 13 loves, but really the same word family. So let's just say 15 times we get this basic agape. You've heard of agape and philos and ethos, or, or eros, rather, not ethos, eros, the different kinds of love, Greek words for love. This is divine love, and the word family is, is agape, or agapao. It means love, whether it's a noun or a verb. So we get all different derivatives. But what we've basically got here is a theme for sure. Like there's no doubt we're talking about love. Well, there's no short of love talk in our culture today now, is there? I mean, everybody pontificates on, on what love is and what love uh, means. It would be impossible tonight to do a full exposition of everybody's thoughts on love in the world and in the watching world around us. But... I want to try to do a brief exposition of God's thoughts on love, particularly as it comes out in 1 John, and especially in chapter 4. So that's, that's our aim. As we look at verses 7 and 8, let's see if we can find love's definition. And then in verses 9 and 10, let's see if we can see love's expression. And then in verses 11 and 12, let's see if we can see love's continued expression in us. So verses 7 and 8, love's definition at the expense of redundancy. Uh, repetition is the way we learn, so look at verses 7 8 one more time. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is what? God is love. So <clears throat> what I find incredibly helpful about this passage is that even though the first John is filled with warnings and, and conditional seeming statements. First John very simply continues to circle the wagons around three themes, and one of them is love. It has to do uh, what, what uh, John Stott calls the social test. But there's two other tests that John, the beloved apostle, writes about here. One of them is doctrinal, and the other one is uh, behavioral. And so if you think of doctrine like things that we know or believe, 
And if you think of behavioral, uh, like ethics or what we do, um, you might kind of get at the, the three things that First John is so concerned with, is testing for marks of authentic Christianity around love or the social mark. But the other two marks would be doctrinal, uh, what, we, what we believe, and then ethics, like how we live. Uh, some folks have tried to get at this different ways, like head, hands, heart. Like head would be what you know, and hands would be what you do, and heart would be the, the social test, who you are, do you, do you love. Um, an idea of being would be the heart, I suppose. Uh, if we would think of, of ontology, being versus doing, if you want to create a dichotomy there. So love would be something that we, that we exhibit, that we are, whereas uh, how we act, how we behave would be something we do, and our doctrine would be something that we would know. This is the, the spiraling discussion all the way through 1 John. And so clearly, the part of 1 John that we're in tonight is the part that is expressing the test of the mark of authentic Christianity, one of the three, and this one is the test of, of love, or what John Stott calls that uh, now deceased Anglican rector, uh, the social test. That we've passed the social test. What's love got to do with it? So... There's a sense in which being Christians, authentic Christians, is more than just, obviously, more than being a brain on a stick. We're not just cerebral, although we're supposed to know stuff, right? We're supposed to know doctrine. That's important, defense sound doctrine. But uh, we don't want to exhibit a kind of cold orthodoxy where we know stuff, but we don't, we, we don't, I hate to say feel stuff. Your feelings can lie to you. But we don't emote. We don't interact together at, at a level of, of close personal connections and and uh, well, covenantal relationships that allow for a kind of intimacy that doesn't cross bounds, or at least it's not supposed to. Uh, love, a social test, an appropriate fellowship. Uh, that's not just what we know, and it's, it's not just what we do. I mean, we can do a lot of, uh, of morally concerned things. We can live ethically, for the most part, and yet not be uh, affectionate toward one another in the body of Christ. I really think this is where the vertical meets the horizontal um, I really think this is where the gospel is made visible, is in the church and how we love one another. Uh, and the first thing we have to do to, in order to love one another is to be committed to one another. And that's really, really hard to do if we are in it for what's convenient and helpful to us on any given Sunday. Um, one of the things that I've, I've, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good in is in staying in a congregation for a long time. When, when frankly, I didn't want to and when frankly, I couldn't see results. It's been one of the most warming, uh, emotional, and yet um, impactive and deeply revealing experiences of my life is to stay. A common word in First John, you know, all of John's writings really is the Greek word minnow. It's often, tra- it's often translated to remain or abide. It appears in our passage. It's a commonality in John's writings. Just to abide with people in the local church. I have here with me tonight my church membership directory, Mount Vernon Baptist Church membership directory. This is the June 2018 edition. We try to reprint every 18 to 24 months. And it's got pictures of the members. And so when my family and I sit down for family worship, we take about four pages at a time. You know, and I'll have a daughter there and that's little. And, and she, I never assign one to the youngest one, uh, but she always wants one. I'll take Susan. She doesn't even know it, you know, Susan. So mom helps her pray for Susan. You know. The next one up, the nine-year-old, she'll, she'll say, well, I'll, I want to pray for the Delancey family. I know the Delanceys. And so literally she'll say, dear Lord, please help the Delanceys. Or, you know, it's always, dear Lord, please help the... 
But now my 13-year-old's gotten to work. She'll take maybe two names, and she prays for them a little more nuancedly. I hope they're learning the mark of authentic Christianity that is to love. Um, I hope that they are. It's not really about numbers and noses. Dallas Willard famously said of spiritual formation that we need to stop counting Christians long enough to weigh them. After tonight's meal, I tell you, I don't want to be weighed. (laughs) But there's a density to an authentic Christian as they grow, isn't it? And to do it in community, um, I don't know if your church puts anything like this out, and I'm not lambasting your church if they don't, but if they do, pick it up and and include it in your prayer guide. Uh, Mark Deffert, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, is the co-author of a book I'm going to commend to you tonight. Him and J.I. Packer uh, co-authored a book, In My Place Condemned He Stood. And I've circled the wagons on this book many times in the last eight, ten years. But Mark Dever is the pastor of the church that first turned us on to valuing uh, a printed membership directory, or I guess a digital one for that matter. But I like the print one because it can go with my Bible, you know. And so it's like the second most important document in my life. Um, because it's the expression of the mark of authentic Christianity that is love. I, I can do doctrine here, and, and I can do ethics here. Uh, but to bridge that gap into something that seems kind of nebulous and often ill-defined as love, um, well, I need the body of Christ for that. I need to be in community, in covenant community with them. Not, not just uh, sort of as, it, as community as it serves me well, but you know, we bury people together. Churches used to have cemeteries. There was a reason why they did. Buried with Christ. Sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, We see babies come into the world. Pray for them. Uh, We see sadnesses and and, uh, yet celebrations. Weddings. Um, Okay, let me get back to the script here because otherwise I could be here all night. But they did tell me to preach long. You heard them say that, right? (laughs) Love's definition Well, in order to see love's definition, you need to see love's origin. Where does love come from? Love comes from God. That's what it says here. Love comes from God. Uh, A podcast I've been listening to lately, uh, Barry Cooper is the speaker on the podcast, a a great British voice. And uh, Barry Cooper is the person that speaks on this podcast from Ligonier Ministries. It's Simply Put. Simply Put is the name of the podcast. And he did um, a wonderful little six-minute exposition of the aseity of God. And here's, here's what he said. He said, because the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit doesn't, doesn't need us, doesn't need us to, in the immortal words of Jerry Maguire, complete him, he is self-existent, meaning he has the power of being in and of himself. He depends on nothing and no one for his existence. He is self-sufficient. That's what aseity means. Aseity in Latin means from himself. Thinking about this, within the Godhead himself, there is a never-ending Niagara of perfect, overjoyed love overflowing between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Unlike you and me, God needs no one outside himself in order to love and be loved. He is in himself both the great lover and the great beloved. That is why the Bible says God is love. He doesn't need anyone or anything apart from himself, in order to love or to exist. So who gets to define love? God, right? For love's definition to work out horizontally, we have to look vertically to get the definition. I'll give you a different example to try to make the same point. This is my first year at Passion for Christ Summit. Having a good time so far. How many other first year ones are here? 
see. So maybe, I don't know, 40% of us or something. Okay, why don't we form a little powwow, okay, after we get done, after I get done preaching this long sermon. Let's uh, form a little powwow together. And let's decide how we're going to tell the world what the history of Passion for Christ is. Let's just decide we're going to define Passion for Christ on our own. Because after all, I mean, we're kind of egotistical and we think we can define Passion for Christ just the same way that the culture thinks they can define love. And let's just do it. You wouldn't do it that way. Somebody come up to you after you leave this conference and somebody was to say, well, tell me all about Passion for Christ. You would be kind of humble about it. You'd be like, well, I had a really good time, but you, know, you really need to talk to Charles. And this is Kavanaugh. You really need to talk maybe Daniel, right? That's what you would do. And, and he would give you kind of a nuanced understanding of the 12, 13 years. How many years is it now? 12? 12 years of Passion for Christ. And he'd tell you about the different theme meals and who the speakers that they've had. And the you know, lives have been changed. And people got married. He would have a rich, nuanced definition of love. We'd just be kind of trying, you know. He'd just be, we'd just be kind of trying to define Passion for Christ. I kind of think that's a metaphor for how the world is trying to define love. And, and frankly, in some shallower and um, some shallower networks of Christians, they're, they're also trying to define love without a robust biblical theology of love. Uh, you know, it's not enough to just say, like, Jesus is my boyfriend or something like that. I mean, this, this, let's think biblically and theologically. Metaphors have their limits. Let's think about love. And love's definition, what well, deserves to be defined by God, who does not need us. The doctrine of the aseity of God is critical here. He doesn't need us to be complete. We don't complete him. Love comes from God because we come from God too. He existed in eternity past. And if we have any hope for future existence in, in glory, it's in his eternity future. Like, we are beholden to him. He's, it's our God. And, and yes, he, he has extended relational offer to us. And we have, I hope every one of you have accepted. If not, I hope you do this weekend through repentance and faith in Christ. But speaking to believers, we have accepted and we, we, don't, we don't have to pay for our sins anymore. He's done it. But the least we can do is constantly live with a verbal recognition of who gets to define what love is. Of who gets to define what it means to be in love and to be loved and to love somebody. Now, this origin of love is from God. And so love's definition finds itself in God. Uh, the common grace that's existent in society is not enough for special grace. Agape love is only possible by being born again. It's only possible by being born again. We must be born again. Common grace allows people to not be as evil as they could possibly be. The doctrine of common grace, a grace that's common to us all to some extent. They're restrained beings out there. People aren't as unloving as they could be, to say it differently. Um, the creation still reflects aspects of God's character, including love. Uh, so there's, there's that out there. It's not that everybody that's ever done anything loving is born again. It's not that. It's just for us to have a robust definition of love, we need to receive the special grace of God. And that is, in fact, what the gospel is so that we might be born again. Uh, God is love. It's not something that he does. It's who he is. He's love. But his love is... His love is, is nuanced and it's rich and it's not, it's not to be treated tritely um, or cheaply. So let's go to, on to, to our second point, which is how God's love is displayed. How God's love 
is displayed. Albert Moeller said on his briefing podcast, which I would also commend to you, he said on it on November the 21st, 2016, he said, truth is not a compliment we pay to an idea we like. Truth instead is an attribute of being objectively true. Truth is an attribute of being objectively true. It's not a compliment we pay to an idea we like. We need to get truthful about love. We need to get truthful about love and define love in its prolific expression, which is God showing his love to us in his son, Christ. Amen? You know, we say love is patient, love is kind, and love never ends. But the God of love showed us his love in making a way for us to come out from underneath the condemnation for our sins. You know, there's, there is no more condemnation for those of us that are in Christ. We don't have to live in the condemnation of our sins. But just like we talked about this morning, it's a very important exercise that we review God's law so that we know how to live, but also so that we can be reminded of our deep need for him and so that we can preach a gospel that includes repentance to an unbelieving world. We have to know what it is that we aren't living up to and that Christ lived up to for us so that we know who it is that we're to worship and we see where we're going in Christ's likeness. And so we, we can't preach cheap grace. I said that in this morning's sermon. You can't preach cheap grace to a, to a lost and dying world. So love's definition comes from God because he is the origin of love. And we can't make up, as Johnny Lake comes of his conversations, we can't make up our own definitions. Secondly, God's love is displayed through his son. And that makes us worshipers. A key word here is propitiation for this definition. It's a $10 word, but it is a key word. I'm so glad the ESV translators kept the word. Look at verses 9 and 10, beloved. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. That's the incarnation, right? First century AD. He sent his only son so that, what's the purpose of it? We might live through him. This is, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, in the biblical material from Genesis to Revelation, God's wrath on humans as just is from cover to cover. That his wrath is just and that it has to be meted out on human beings or on an appropriate sacrificial lamb, that is just biblical theology 101. In fact, in Revelation, there's a theology of the lamb that is important to the heart of the atonement or to propitiation. Revelation speaks of the lamb 29 times as to pick up on Leviticus's themes of a paschal lamb, that bloody old covenant process of sacrificing a lamb for the sins of the people. The sacrifice of a lamb, however gruesome this may seem to our modern sensibilities, was necessary to law and to law's fulfillment, and it was fulfilled in Christ. He is the great Passover lamb. Israel was chastised for child sacrifice to Moloch as they followed other gods. Genesis 22 tells the story of Abraham being led right to the precipice of child sacrifice before the child of promise Isaac suddenly replaced was replaced with a sacrificial lamb. All, all the exodus is climaxed in God passing over judgment on his people because they had sacrificed a lamb and put drops of blood on their doorposts. This was to symbolize the burden of wrath-satisfying justice as being upon God rather than on man. For God's people, God would provide the lamb with a capital L. 
For God's rejectors, they would be left to face justice for their sin. We see justice through sacrifice in the word propitiation. The specific mentioning of propitiation occurs in four passages in the New Testament. It's alluded to all over the Bible, as I've already indicated. But one of the four passages is the one that we just read. It says, God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You might say that's sort of like the before and after of John 3.16. Yes, God sent his son into the world. That is true. To be the propitiation for our sins. He died in our place. I've been recommending this book to you tonight so far. In my place condemned he stood. Uh, this, is a, this is a treatise on this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Or of, of propitiation. Of Christ dying in our place. One other place in the New Testament of the four that propitiation is mentioned is also in First John. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if you still have your Bibles open, that's easy enough to see because it's just like right there, one page over. And it says, First John chapter 2, My little children, verse 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, like legal representation, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, or the just. He is the, you see that word? propitiation for our sins. He's the propitiation for our sins. This is critical to love's definition. I'm going to flip over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Here's a third place that it's mentioned. It says, um, since therefore, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to make him make like his brothers, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In, in verse 18 as well. But for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I don't have a great answer, Ellen, to your question. We talked about your question, but I tell you, this verse helps me. I'm still meditating with you. you know, because he has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's been made a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now we were just discussing uh, issues of theodicy and God and uh, what it means for us to suffer in the midst of a world. How does God get glory? We were just talking about some very interesting things. I hope it's okay that I share that uh, because it's important. You know, I think it's a very important conversation um, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One more place in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. You're probably familiar with this passage. It's uh, on the so-called Romans Road. Uh, to salvation, that so many of us grew up hearing. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, includes a citing of the word propitiation. Romans three twenty-one, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forth, this is love, isn't it? Whom God put forward as a, say it with me, propitiation. As a propitiation by his blood, lamology, by his blood to be received by faith. We must receive that by faith. It makes us kind of hopeless, really. Or helpless, rather. He does the help for us. Not, help, not hopeless. We're very hopeful, but we're helpless. We don't bring anything but our sin to salvation. 
And I'll finish the, the thought here through verse 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Aren't you glad you have faith in Jesus? Oh, I'm so glad I have faith in Jesus. So glad I have faith in Jesus. I, I'm, uh, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing to have a Savior that loves like this. And as an act of worship, I want to make sure that I'm defining love in a way that has propitiation in view. In a way that has propitiation in view. That's sincerely something that I think that we need to be thinking about. Um, because I don't know that it's loving for us to acquiesce to the world's definitions of love. I don't know that it's helpful to people for us to agree in their lies. We live in a difficult and perilous time. The West has gone absolutely mad. Absolutely mad. Um, LifeSite News was one of the only stories to carry, one of the only news outlets to carry the story of a man in Texas who's divorced from his wife and she's wanting to do a transgender surgery on her male son and change his name to Luna. And the dad doesn't want him to. And the dad has been sanctioned from calling his son a son. And accused of being unloving in the first degree because he won't go along with it. I'm not arguing for us to return to the days of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. It's not that. It's just, you know, when, when are we hateful to not speak? serve, civilly disobey. can't imagine that, Dad. Can you imagine that, Dad? I can't imagine it. I think to be heartbroken in this, in this cultural moment is to realize that they've, they've really missed the boat on the definition of love. Like Love is not do whatever makes you feel good. Love was a huge, The attribute of God that is love pervades him was hugely costly to him. He didn't just get to do what he wanted to do he did what he wanted to do that we needed him to do so that we could actually join in his perfect relationship within himself. He made a way where there was absolutely no road. Love's definition is from God and love's expression is in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ. It's not something that's expressed in any way before. It's expressed in Christ, it's not expressed by us. It's not a squishy type of love. It's a propitiatory love. But then, God's love doesn't stay defined strictly by things that have happened in the past because Christ's sacrifice for us has ongoing and eternal ramifications. We, third point, are the continuing expression of God's love to the watching world. And as we behold him to one another. Um, so it's, it's God defines love. He defines it namely in his son through propitiation. But our third point tonight and our final point is how love's expression is continuing to be displayed through the church. Listen to the last two verses of this text. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought. So there's an oughtness to this verse. We also ought to love one another. So the grounding principle in how you're supposed to relate 
as one another in the body of Christ, the grounding principle is what God's done for you. Like, that's the grounding principle. It's not how I feel about it, not whether or not they did me right this week. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it's just, it's much deeper than that. Like, this, this verse is so helpful in this way. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. It doubles down. So, so in loving one another, let me see if I can pick back up on an earlier sermon today. In loving one another, uh, we behold the Lord. In beholding the Lord, we see him more clearly as we look to him uh, instead of looking to ourselves. And so we look to him more than we look to ourselves. And we learn to look to him more by studying the word together and growing together and, and bringing our quiet times come together into covenant community in the church. And we we. We love one another. We pass this, uh, this social test, this mark of a Christian, this affection for one another that is, is coupled with our doctrine, what we know, and it's coupled with how we live, with our ethics. But this social test, this love, this, this is loving one another. It's an expression in the membership of the church of God's love, not just in worship for seeing the Lord, but also for sharing him with the watching world. This is where I gather this from. This oughtness in covenant local church membership, in, in the togetherness in the local church, comes out in verse 12. It says, no one has ever seen God, and truly no one has seen God in his fullness. There are theophanies in the Bible, and we could discuss that extensively and whatnot, but no one has ever seen God in his essence. But, Jesus said, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, right? And so, God sent his Son. There's a lot going on there with that incarnation. I mean, his active and passive obedience is amazing for us. It's not just what he allowed to have happened to him, it's what he continued to do for us over the course of his existence for 30 years plus. This verse says no one's seen God. It's an amazing statement. If we love one another, so this is the third time that that phrase appears in this passage, love one another, love one another, love one another. If we love one another, God remains, abides in us, plural, in us, John the Apostle, believe, has the church in mind when he's writing this. God abides in us if we love one another, and his love is perfected in us. Perfected, it's a, telos is the root word there. It means complete, perfect, mature. That might be helpful to you, since perfect is, is probably a difficult word here for you to digest in a short moment. Love is completed. It's, it's matured in us. It's perfected in us. So no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's complete in us. And I think one way of saying this differently is that if we live out this social test of loving one another in covenant community in the local church, and if we, if we, if we stay in that together, we are a witness to the watching world. They, they see God through us. And I have the Spirit too, don't you? I mean, to quote the Apostle Paul, I mean, you've got the Spirit I mean, what is the new covenant? It's the Spirit comes and stays. It doesn't come and go. It comes and stays. So you've got the Spirit. And so they see God because us together as people, individuals indwelled with the Spirit, we are led to live out a unity together that the Spirit guarantees at the consummation. It is good for us to pursue that which we are being made into. It is good for us to cooperate, to be involved in, and to serve together in the body of Christ with a representative unity that the, that the Spirit has guaranteed. Now, that's, that's a teaser for tomorrow's sermon, because that's Ephesians 4, 1-3. But it fits in right here. 
love one another, people see God. So I want to urge you tonight, um, I want to urge you tonight to take a second look at your vows in local church membership. Take a second look at it. Take a second look at your, at your church directory if you've got one. And grind through the gears of, of praying for people. It's hard to stay mad at somebody you pray at. I mean, all of a sudden I get to like, you know, Tom Smith. There's no Tom Smith in my church. You know, I get to Tom Smith and I'm like, God help Tom Smith. I guess I shouldn't think so poor of him. You know? I mean, but I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a small little thing it seems like, but this is loving one another. All of a sudden what happens is you start, and then you go about third time through if you just kind of work through, and you get to Tom Smith. You're like, you know, Tom's sick. I wonder if I could take him something to eat, you know. Or, you know, or Tom, man, he seems to be really having trouble in his marriage. I wonder if I can give him a date night. Maybe I can watch their kids, you know, or something. This stuff starts, the Lord works because you got the spirit, right? I mean, the God's indwelling spirit, that's the newness of a new covenant. I think one of the ways that we overlook that's natural for us to abide, for us to live like it, is in the local church. I'll tie it together with one cross-reference, and then I'll close. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Charles, I'm doing that thing. I probably went too long right here. I probably just did, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's the preacher's, it's the preacher's Achilles heel. It's when to end it. When to end it. No, you hadn't looked yet? Okay, well, maybe. Romans chapter 12. <laughs> well, I promise this is it. I promise. I'll keep my word. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll, we'll uh, conclude it. So, so this, is, this is, I want to try to tie together some themes with the glue, with glory and love and unity. We've talked tonight about love's definition, love's expression, the propitiation of Christ, and love's continued expression in our love for one another. The world sees God in us as we live out these covenant membership vows. I want you to notice something in Romans chapter 12, verse, uh, well, verse 2, I suppose, would be the verse. Do not be conformed to this world. You probably, many of you have memorized some translation of this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That word transformed is metamorpho. It's the same word that we used this morning from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Transformed in the likeness of Christ, one degree of glory to another. It's the same Greek word that's translated transfigured in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, where Jesus is transfigured in front of Peter and James and John, maybe you don't remember. Do you remember? Some of you remember? It makes me feel better if you remember. Like five of you remember that this morning? Okay. Oh, I had steak. Yeah. Metamorpho. Well, the whole theme of this thing is we're being transformed in the likeness of Christ, and we're pursuing of that. Even though it's guaranteed, like Michael Jordan winning the championships, we're working on it. And it's, there's joy in the labor. We're, we're God. God's doing something in us. And... When I read this verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Metamorphosize, be transformed by, I hear process, by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable. Look at verse 1. He appeals to them, brothers and sisters, so that's like church language, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. So, alive sacrifices, we don't need a dead one. Jesus already died for us. Offering yourself... Holy, right? We pursue holiness, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory and acceptable to God. And this is our, our spiritual worship. That's when we are engaged in this. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 3. By grace, for it's by grace given to me. Look at the canonical ordering of things here. I say to everyone among you, well, who's among you if it isn't the believers, if it isn't the church? 
You ought not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment of yourself, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For in one body we have many members. So there's a membership citing in the New Testament. One body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So where are you supposed to use the function that God's given you? It says, verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members, and individually members one of another. Well, where are you supposed to use those gifts? Say, in the local church. How are you supposed to love one another? In a membership in the local church. How are you supposed to know which elders to submit to? Membership in the local church. I mean, how do you discipline members and put them out of a thing that they're not in? Membership in a local church. How do you reconcile them and bring them back into the membership? Membership role in the local church. Like it's... It's like, well, the Trinity Trinity's not in the, New, in the New Testament. Sure it is. You don't need the Latin word Trinitas for the Trinity to be there. That's the Godhead. Uh, you don't need the word member to be spelled out as church membership all the time for it to be there. But it is kind of there. Like members is sort of there individually. It's kind of there. So what I want to do to kind of pull this in, and hopefully it helps with your community groups tomorrow, is think about applying propitiatory style love with regard to self-sacrifice in the local church so that what we, what we believe and... How we behave is, is formed in with that triad of love and that social test is passed by Marks of a Christian. This passage is, that I'm ending with here is, is about the gifts in the body, but those gifts are to be expressed with one another. And I think transformation, metamorphosis, I think part of the application there from beholding God by reading the scriptures like Second Peter said, I think part of the application is that we do this together with the giftedness in the body and covenant community in such a way that we can mark time and how we've been grown, how we've changed. And I think that's really hard to do with fly-by-night church attendance. And, and I think it's really, really hard to do with sort of a, like a dating relationship with the members of the church. I think that we need to be in a kind of wedded union together. And so I've tasted and seen the Lord is good in this way. I'm trying to give you a biblical theological kind of understanding of this glue that holds us together with one another. It's obviously all about giving God glory. It's about a right definition of love. And tomorrow, if God is willing, um, we'll be able to talk about a unity. A unity. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Can we pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this word. Um, That's a bigger thing for us than a visible vision on the Mount of Transfiguration. For being something that we have in perpetuity as the church, that we get to just know what you think about issues by reading your word and rightly dividing the word of truth and putting it together. I just want to pray for these people tonight that, that uh, they, would, they would be witnesses in the world by valuing the one another's in the local church. That they would behold you and see you and then that the world would see you through them, not just individually but corporately as they love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.